All right, we will go ahead and start. I can already feel that it's uh, going to get warm in here, so uh, maybe I will. I don't want to. Is everybody okay with it? Some people made some concerned faces when I. <laughs> Is that good? All right. I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm right back home with my wife. This is. That's uh, <laughs> great. All right. We'll um. We'll go ahead and get started. Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Second uh, Corinthians, chapter seven. And uh, we will. Uh, talk about these verses here in our time together. Let me pray, and we'll get after it here. Father in heaven, we're grateful to Jesus for uh, the gift of salvation that we have in Him. We're grateful to Jesus for uh, being the Word uh, that was made flesh. We're grateful to Jesus for uh, the testimony about Him that is in His Word here. And Father, I pray that You would help us to be uh, more competent and equipped ministers of the Gospel because of our time together today. I pray, Father, for this issue that we're going to be talking about of pornography. Father, would You have mercy on us? Would You have mercy on us as individuals? on us as spouses, on us as parents and grandparents. Would you have mercy on our culture as this problem continues to ravage our society? Father, would you spare us from the natural consequences of this plague? And uh, Father, I pray that the pain that ensues from so many people who are broken by this problem... uh, I pray that you would use it, uh, as we know you can and do, to bring light out of darkness and hope out of despair and life out of death. Uh, Father, that's your work. You love to do it, and we pray for you to do it in this area of pornography. And Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Let me read uh, the text here that we're going to be looking at. And... um, uh, in fact, I'll start in verse 2 just to get some overall context. We're just going to be paying attention to a few verses uh, uh, up through verse 11. But uh, this is what God's Word says. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with sorrow. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. 
For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So this is um, a passage um, that... uh, requires some information about the Apostle Paul's complicated relationship with the Corinthians to understand uh, how it's working. Um, Because Paul has said some really hard things to the Corinthians in his letters. Uh, Those hard things have been required to be said because of the Corinthians' sinfulness. And uh, between when Paul said those hard things and now that he writes this, he is trying to say some things to sort of bring the relationship full circle. And uh, he essentially says uh, in the passage that we just read, when I wrote you what I wrote you, I made you sad. And I'm glad about that. That's essentially what he says, which is kind of a weird thing to say. I mean, we we don't think of... Uh, when we think of like being in a relationship of love with someone, we don't typically think of saying, you're sad because of something I said, and I'm glad about that. But that's what the Apostle Paul says here. He says, I'm glad I made you sad, but it's a little more complicated than that. He's like, I'm glad you were sad because you got sad and you repented and you changed. Uh, so this isn't that he said a harsh, uh, thoughtless, unkind, ungodly remark. He engaged in a rebuke that made them sad that led to repentance. And so this is a really crucial passage in the New Testament that talks about the importance of sorrow uh, in repentance. And it's, the passage doesn't mention um, pornography. It actually doesn't mention any particular sin that they committed. But the passage, in not mentioning any of those particularities, invites us to uh, apply the implications of it to all the areas of our lives that are sinful where we might need to be broken and so pursue repentance. And so what I want to do is just take this and apply it to the problem of pornography. I'm saying in your notes there that I really think um, that the greatest moral threat that the church is facing is the threat of pornography. Um, it is, there's other moral threats, for Pete's sake. I mean, you, you know what, um, uh, what many of them are. I mean, we all know about the uh, very discouraging statistics uh, about divorce in this country. Um, uh, adultery is uh, as common as it's ever been. Uh, the news is filled up with all sorts of information these days about um, homosexual marriage. Um, and in fact, I think it's probably fair to say that at least in the last couple of months, most of the Christian attention on moral sins have been sort of focused on um, on the issue of homosexual marriage. And I think all those things are important. And I'm not trying to diss any of those issues, but I think, in, in spite of how serious those those problems are, I think that the greatest moral threat is the problem of pornography. And the reason I think that is because pornography 
happens in the darkness with nobody apparently knowing. So, in the old days, if you wanted to commit adultery, you had to ask someone to do it with you. You had to get up the courage to walk up there and look them in the eye and say something. And even if by the time you brought up the idea of adultery, if it was pretty much guaranteed that that's where this was headed, you still had to worry about other people finding out. You got two lives and two tracks to cover and all this kind of thing. And uh, it's just easy to find out. Then, um, uh, pornography went sort of mainstream in the middle of the last century, but it wasn't available digitally because nobody knew what digital was in the 1960s. Uh, And so you still had to walk into uh, some sort of store and look at someone across the counter and ask for that magazine on the other side of the counter, and they had to give it to you while making judgments you assumed that you were a sketchy pervert and they were creeped out by you. Well, with the advent of Internet pornography, all of that has gone away. Sociologist Al Cooper uh, called the Internet uh, the crack cocaine of pornography because uh, it makes it available, anonymous, and affordable. Um, it's, it's right there. Nobody has to know, and it's cheap. Uh, most of the time it's so cheap it doesn't cost anything. Uh, and so it, it, is, it is the crack cocaine, again, as he said, of, uh, of porn. It's the superhighway. Um, and we're in a mess because of it. I mean, we are. Uh, I, I think the greatest threat to the moral framework of the church is not gay people getting married in California. I don't, I don't want them to do that. But I'm not surprised that they're doing that. I mean, are you? I mean, do, do we expect unbelievers to act like believers? Well, I hope we don't think that uh, unsaved people are supposed to act like saved people. We're supposed to go, yeah, this is a broken world, and they need Jesus, so let's spread the gospel. The greatest threat to the moral framework of the church is a pastor who preaches against homosexuality and then goes to his home office and looks at pornography for an hour or four. And that's, that's really the situation that we're dealing with. Um, I mean, depending on the statistics that you look at, anywhere from 50 to 75% of pastors are saying, i got a problem with this. At least it's a temptation and a struggle. Um, 56% of divorces in the last couple of years uh, cite uh, pornography addiction in one of the members of the couple as, as a reason for the divorce. In 2011, so this is an old statistic, 40% of online pornography was consumed by women. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. I mean, when most people, when they think of porn, they're thinking of something the guys are doing. 40% is a high number. That's a shocking number. Um, the, uh, the latest statistic, uh, it moves around a little bit, but the most recent statistic is uh, that the average age that a person is exposed to hardcore moving pornography, so not pictures in a magazine, like videos, um, videos of people having sex, the, the average exposure for a, for a person today is 12. Average. So a lot of people saw it a lot before that. I heard that statistic a couple years ago, or uh, 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 a couple weeks ago, um, uh, reading about this in bed next to my wife, and I read her that statistic. And I said, what do you think the chances are of Carson 
and Connor and Chloe getting to 18, and they don't see pornography. And we agree it's 0%. I mean, what are the chances of them making it to 18 and they haven't seen it? We've got, I mean, we've got our house sealed up tighter than a drum. But if we were talking about another, if we were talking about protecting your kids from pornography, we'd find out that that's not even half the battle. Um, so this is a big deal. This is, this is the, the biggest threat we've ever faced as a church. Um, and the reason is because it can happen in the dark. It can, it can, we can look at it and then come to a biblical counseling conference and act like we love Jesus and act like we love the Bible. And it's so secret and it takes everybody a little while to figure it out. Once they figure it out, it bites hard. Uh, but it can exist so long uh, in the darkness. And one of the reasons that people are not changing uh, is because they're not experiencing real brokenness, real sorrow over the sin. Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. There's so many other things to uh, talk about with regard to helping people with pornography. Uh, we were talking in here before this. I wrote a book about this called Finally Free, and it's got several different strategies that I want to commend to help people change. So this is just one of them. As, uh, as I was talking with uh, Joe about what I'd talk about, he really encouraged me to talk about this topic, so this is what I'm choosing. But it's relatively arbitrary in that sense. There are other things that we could discuss, but we're talking here at his request about the, uh, the importance of sorrow uh, in the fight against uh, pornography. Change requires brokenness. You don't, you don't change if everything's fine. You don't change if you feel no pain, if you feel no twinge of difficulty. You don't change. Change requires brokenness and sorrow. Uh, people that are happy about their sexual immorality or any other sin be it porn or whatever, people that are happy about that, people that are content in that, uh, they'll never be different. Uh, God has ordered uh, the human heart so that brokenness precedes change. Um, it, um, it, it, brokenness and sorrow are required for change. Um, so we want people uh, who are enslaved to pornography to be broken over their use of pornography, to come to the conviction that this is dishonoring to Jesus Christ, it's uh, bad for them, and it's unloving to every single person they can think of, whether that's the person on the screen that they're ogling or whether it is the people in their life um, uh, that they are betraying and, and letting down by looking at it. They need to be broken uh, over that. And so one of the first things... Uh, that we want to do in counseling is to have people be broken. Um, and that's where the Apostle Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians comes in and is so relevant. He says in verse 8, he says, Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice... Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. The Apostle Paul understands that repentance is preceded by grief or sorrow. And he's happy about that. He's happy about the grief because it leads to, it leads to sorrow. And so the Apostle Paul wants to produce sorrow, but, and this is where 
what he tells us is so profound. Because essentially what he does is he warns us. Don't think that because someone is sad, that means they're going to repent. So, so there's two issues here. One is, you can't change if you're not sad. Sorrow leads to repentance. But the other thing, and this is what's so profound, is that not all sorrow is created equal. He says, For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So Paul says there's two kinds of sorrow. There's two kinds of grief. One saves you and one kills you. Isn't that fascinating? This, this is what's so important. Um, in, the, uh, in the Finally Free book, I tell a story uh, in the chapter on this uh, about two guys named Ryan and Dave. That's not the real name. Um, but uh, very similar stories. Each of them married for a while. Um, each of them had spent a lot of time in their marriage looking at pornography quietly under the radar without their wives knowing it. And each of them uh, had gotten discovered by their wives looking at pornography. Uh, each of them begged for forgiveness. Each of them promised they would work on it. And it went away for a little while. And then before too long, their wives caught them again, confronted them. They pled for forgiveness. And both of them, both couples came to meet with me. And I described the meeting in my office with each of these two guys where both of them were pleading. One of them was on their knees in front of his wife, begging her to forgive him because both wives had had it. It had been a couple of years of this, and they were ready to go, and all this kind of thing. And they were like, please, it's different. They're both sobbing. One, one of them was screaming so loud security came in my office. They thought, what in the world's going on in here? Um, both terribly sad. And, um, but between Dave and Ryan, actually only one of them changed. Uh, one of them is married still to his wife and a happy father to his kids. The other is divorced from his wife, actually did some jail time because he wound up looking at some illegal kinds of pornography and he was discovered doing that. And the challenge I make in the book is you look at those two stories and you tell me which one is which. Which one changed and which one didn't based on my relating of those two stories. And the reality is you can't tell. You can't tell right then. They're both sorrow, sorrowful, but each one of them had their sorrow springing from two very different wells. And the two different wells are either worldly sorrow or godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, in verse 10, leads to death. What is worldly sorrow? Well, the object of worldly grief or worldly sorrow is the world. It's the things of the world. Worldly sorrow is the sadness that you feel when you get caught. Worldly sorrow is the sadness that you feel when the things of this world are going to be taken from you or you fear they'll be taken from you. Worldly sorrow is the tears that flow because you're going to lose your job or your kids think you're a pervert or your wife thinks you're a creeper or you have lost your reputation or whatever it is you you are broken over consequences and the reason worldly sorrow leads to death 
is because what led you to commit the sin and what led you to be sad is the same thing. You see, I looked at pornography because I'm obsessed with me. I want what I want. I want my things. I want sex and sexual pleasure on my terms, not on God's terms. None of my wife's terms, none of my husband's terms. I want it for me. And I went and did it, and now the sin is pushing back, I'm getting the blowback, I'm getting the consequences, and now I'm going to lose the stuff I want, do you see? So it's me that drives the committing of the sin, and it's me that drives the worldly sorrow. I haven't changed. Nothing is different. It's me sitting in the middle of my universe wanting what I want when I want it. I'm legitimately sad, but I'm sad in a way that still has me obsessed with me and it'll kill me. That's true with every sin, by the way. Godly grief or godly sorrow, the object of that is God. In godly sorrow, verses 9 and 11, I am sad... Because I've broken God's heart. I'm sad because I have broken God's law. I'm sad because I've brought pain into the life of people that God calls me to love. Godly grief is life-giving and leads to life because everything's different. When you pursue your sin, you're thinking about you. But when God gives us the gift of godly grief, now I have repented and I've turned from myself towards God and I'm broken over Him. That's why it leads to life. Because it represents a change in heart and attitude away from yourself and towards Jesus. it, It represents repentance. The turning from self to the Lord. So not all sorrow is created equal. When you are sitting... Uh, in a counseling session, talking with somebody who's looking at pornography or has committed adultery or has stolen petty cash from their employer and they're crying, you have to very honestly say you have no idea which one they are. You might have some experience with this person and some history with this person that leads you to think one way or the other, but you don't know. You don't know. How can you know? Well, this is where... Paul moves from being not merely profound but also very practical because he tells us how we can tell if somebody is really repentant. Uh, Again, this is not just for pornography. This is uh, people ask me all the time. Okay, I got somebody seem really sad. We've been talking about this for a couple months. Nothing's getting different. How can I know if they are truly repentant? Well, the answer is in Second Corinthians seven. We're just applying it here to uh, to pornography. In fact, one person said about the. uh, I'm going to adjust this for a second. I don't have a clip on that, so. I'm trying to make that work. But hopefully it's my shirt's not like rubbing up against it. I don't know. Um, um, uh, somebody said after they read my book on pornography, they said, it seems like you just took like the basic biblical principles of change and applied them to pornography. And I was like, that's it. That's all I did. It's the dirty little secret. Uh, there's nothing special in there. It's just biblical principles of change applied to the specific problem uh, of, of pornography. Um, 
And so that's all I'm doing with this, with this chapter here, is I'm just taking the text and applying it to a specific problem. What are the markers of godly sorrow? Well, verse 11 mentions that. And here's, you know, I always make reference to this. I don't know if you've picked up on it when I've been talking about it in the other room. But this is, we're going to look for the rest of the time at one verse of the Bible. Just one little verse. And stuff like that makes me laugh when people say the Bible's not useful in counseling. I mean, we're going we're gonna to spend the rest of our time talking about one little verse, and you will spend uh, the rest of your lives evaluating people uh, and the thoroughness and the legitimacy of their repentance. Just one, one verse. And this is one verse and one whole chapter and one whole book and one whole testament and one whole Bible. Like... Who, who ever said the Bible wasn't good enough for counseling? We're talking about one verse. All right, done. Um, what, what are the markers of godly sorrow? See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Godly sorrow is earnest. Worldly sorrow gets caught and is sad. For a while. Worldly sorrow is resolved to change for a while. Worldly sorrow really wants to be devoted to seeing the course and defeating this issue for a while. But after a while, worldly sorrow figures out something really sinister. And what that sinister thing is that it figures out is, you know what, I'm not going to lose this thing. My wife isn't going to leave. My wife did leave, but I'm making do without her. There's somebody else. Um, My kids think I'm a little creepy, but they got over it. As soon as the consequences start to recede worldly sorrow goes away because it wasn't earnest, because it was just about you. So as soon as the consequences are gone, worldly sorrow is gone and everything's fine, but the sin is still there. Godly sorrow is earnest because God is always there and God's standards remain and because true repentance has begun to happen, godly sorrow is diligent weeks, months, and years after worldly sorrow left the scene. It is devoted in public and in private uh, to seeing this sin be defeated. It is devoted in the short term and the long term to overcoming the effects of this sin. It is earnest. So, what's the first marker of godly sorrow or of true repentance? Somebody who's sticking with it. Uh, If I'm having to chase you all over the place, leaving voicemails that never get returned, texts that never get returned. If I'm driving by your house to try to find you, uh, you're not being earnest. And we have a problem here. Another marker is eagerness to clear yourselves. Still in verse 11, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. Now some people misunderstand this. They think that what Paul is talking about sometimes is 
that you're eager to clear yourself in the way we talk about it like in a 21st century courtroom. I want to clear myself of the charges like I'm innocent. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about because he's talking about people who repented. So the people are guilty. So he doesn't mean clear yourself like you didn't do it. He means clear yourself from the entanglement of the sin that clings so closely in the Hebrews 12 sense of the term. I want to get clear of the temptation of the sin. Um... Worldly sorrow doesn't want to do that. Worldly sorrow wants to put on whatever kind of show it's got to put on to make everybody think I'm getting clear of the sin. But it's always working in private to find some way to nurture it. Because it's about you. So how can I keep my reputation and keep my porn? But when you have godly sorrow, you're eager to clear yourself and say, how can I honor the Lord? What do I do to get out of this thing. And there's all kinds of things that we could say by way of practicality to help clear yourself of the sin of pornography. But in this context, um, I always say um, two things that are, that are the starting points for clearing yourself of pornography. And the, uh, the first thing is uh, to talk to someone about it. So many people, because they're, they're dealing with worldly sorrow and not with godly sorrow, so many people want to try to find a way to end this thing without telling anybody. Oh, my goodness. And it takes them so long to figure out that that's not possible. So many hours and days and weeks and months and years wasted trying to do it uh, in a way that God has not prescribed. So much time spent trying to solve the problem of sin in the darkness when the Bible says it takes the light to do that. You have to expose the darkness to the light. This is the, this is the hardest thing for people to do. This is the thing that everybody from 15 to 55, they sit there and say, I can't tell. I can't tell. How would I ever tell? Well, here's the thing. You just need to know that that's the first and best indicator that you have worldly sorrow that will kill you and not godly sorrow with you. God, Jesus doesn't want to change you by preserving your pride. Why would Jesus want to do that? Um, uh, Jesus wants to change you by exposing the darkness to the light and nurturing humility in your heart. Um, So you have to talk about it. Now, the problem with those of us who, by God's grace, are not looking at pornography and want to help people who are, we don't get to choose whether they're honest with with us or not. Isn't that frustrating? It kills me. one of these days I'm going to write something called I love counseling and I hate counseling. That's, that's, that's my life. I love counseling and I hate it. And I mean it. I love counseling and I hate it. And there's all kinds of things that make me hate counseling. Now, I'm leading an organization called the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, so I better explain myself. <laughs> one of the things I hate about counseling, see, I'm a fixer. So the reason, one of the reasons I love counseling is because I'm a fixer. I like, if you're having a problem, I want to help. Um, but the corollary part of that that makes me hate counseling is I can't fix you, though. Because God saw to it that I'm not the Holy Spirit. And if I were, I would know what to do. I would. Like, you know what I'm talking about. You have a counselee, and they won't listen. And if you were the Holy Spirit, you would know exactly what verse to shove right in their heart. You'd know exactly what changes to implement in their life and how to motivate them to be different. And God just didn't give us that job. Our job is to 
speak the word and be faithful and then trust him with the rest. And, it, and I have to remind myself of that because it kills me. And so I, I just want to... Uh, Joe was talking about how I'm a ventriloquist. Uh, and sometimes I wish that were true. Sometimes I wish I could just make people say the words. Just confess it. But we can't do that. I don't think that means there's nothing we can do. I think if we want to help people struggle, who, who struggle, cultivate uh, honesty about this, I think we need to work to be the kinds of people that they would feel comfortable sharing this problem with. And I think that means a couple of things. I think it means that we need to be the kind of people who are honest about our own struggles. I mean, we don't look at porn, but we got our own problems. Gosh, we ought to be transparent people. We ought to be the most transparent people in the world. You know one of the reasons why uh, unbelievers don't listen to us? is because Christians got in this nasty little habit over the last couple of decades of talking about sex and sexual immorality and sexual ethics from a standpoint of moral superiority instead of mutual brokenness and humility. Uh, Look, we're nobody special. We are just some people that God decided it would be a very gracious thing to do to save. So all of us have our sin. All of us have our junk. For the life of me, I don't know why we can't talk about it. If we could talk about the things God has saved us from, if we could talk about the things God is saving us from, people who struggle would feel more comfortable talking to people who know what it's like to be broken. So I think we need to be those people. And then the second thing is we need to have something to say about how to help. Why would somebody want to come to us and be honest if they think that we can't give them any wisdom about how to be different? So if people sense that we are real and open and honest and authentic, and if they sense that we have some wisdom that could lead them to change... Well, I think that then I think we've done what we can do to help people to be honest, and the rest is on them. The other thing uh, that we need to do about being eager to clear yourselves is um, to employ what I call in the book radical measures. We need to do things to isolate ourselves from pornography, um, and that means we need to seal off our access to pornography. This doesn't change people, okay? Internet filters and internet blocks don't change the heart. But that doesn't mean they're not important. And the reason I know they're not important is because it's an implication of what Jesus says in Matthew 5. That if you are tempted to sin, you need to cut off your hand and gouge out your eye. Jesus is encouraging radical measures to remove ourselves from the temptation of sexual immorality. Same thing in 1 Corinthians 6 when the Apostle Paul says we're supposed to flee sexual immorality. Um, Jesus nor anybody else in the Bible ever encourages us to just keep getting as close to sexual immorality as we can while we hope Jesus changes our heart and leads us to to hate it. Uh, We run from it and we use the distance to cultivate a hatred towards immorality and a love for what God endorses. So we need to cut these things off. That won't be the fix, but it will give grace, uh, it will give room in our heart for grace to grow. And uh, so we need to cut these things off. I tell people when they come to me uh, uh, to meet with me about these things, um, I say I need in four hours an email from Covenant Eyes or Be Safe or one of those places um, that you have installed this device on your computer or your phone or whatever, and I'm your accountability partner. If I don't even need to meet with somebody again if they haven't done that. If they haven't sealed off their access to this, they're just not serious about change. They're not eager to clear themselves. Um, and there's other things, too. I mean, you know, you uh, uh, there's all sorts of things that we do to 
put accountability in people's lives. I won't go into all that here. Uh, but one common thing, you know, one, one common time when guys look is they kiss their wives goodnight and their wives go to bed and their wives think they're going to be working on the computer or something and they're not working on the computer. They're looking at pornography on the computer. That's a very, very common time when guys struggle. If you have a husband that's up late working, you should not think the worst of him and assumes he has a porn problem. Um, but... Um, but that is a common time when guys struggle. And if that's a time when guys struggle, I say, hey, you, you need to have a bedtime ritual with your wife. And that means when your wife goes to bed, you just go to bed. And your wife is not free for the foreseeable future to uh, not be suspicious of you if you're out of the bed uh, in the middle of the night. So there's all kinds of things uh, that we need to do to clear ourselves. But the first two things are be open and honest and pursue accountability. So the markers of godly sorrow in verse 11, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation or hatred. Worldly sorrow produces a kind of indignation, a kind of hatred, so you have to be careful here. The hatred of worldly sorrow is the hatred of the consequences. I got caught. Why are you on me all the time? Why do you always want to see my internet history? Why are you always wanting to see what I've been looking at on my phone? It hates the concept. Why am I sleeping on the couch? Well, you're supposed to be on the couch for a little while. You know? I mean, if you've been nurturing this kind of sexual immorality, the couch might be a good place for you for a little bit. But when they get annoyed and when they express hatred, it's always hatred over the consequences. So worldly sorrow has hatred too. We have to be careful here. The indignation of godly sorrow is hatred over the sin. Hatred over this thing that separates me from God. Hatred over this thing that would separate me from my wife or my parents or my husband or my kids or my employees. Hatred over the sin. When we are aware of quiet love that remains for pornography and we just wish we didn't have all this hassle so we could look at it, we have more work to do in the area of repentance because that's an indicator of, of worldly sorrow. What fear, what indignation, what fear. Worldly sorrow produces a kind of fear too, so we have to be careful. The fear of worldly sorrow is the fear that I'm going to get caught. Because remember, worldly sorrow wasn't ever really broken over the sin. It's broken over the consequences. It wasn't earnest, and it didn't try to clear itself. It just tried to keep putting up a show. Worldly sorrow is busy to put on a production, not change. And so I've got this bright, shiny, smiley, happy face that I'm just as pure as the wind-driven snow, and I'm doing the work. But in the background, I'm looking for opportunities to look at pornography, and I'm scared to death you're going to find out. So there's fear and worldly sorrow. But the fear of godly sorrow is Did you guys see Frozen? Yeah? Okay. The uh, Walt Disney movie that took the world by storm. In fact, I think I have this here. I won't play it, don't worry. I'm not going to do that to you. Um, uh, yeah, I do have the lyrics here. So, my favorite song 
in uh, the movie Frozen, which I have seen because uh, I have three little kids, and I have seen again because I like it. So, uh, so you know, it's one of those when the kids ask to see Frozen, it's like, okay, let's put it on. Or, hey, kids, do you want to watch Frozen tonight? Uh, okay, <laughs> let's put it in the DVD player. But um, so there's this little snowman, this little magical snowman called Olaf. Anybody? Okay, and he has a song called In Summer. Totally love this song. Here is so so he's a snowman. Okay, and the I forget the names of the princess and the is it. No, for what? Elsa, Elsa and uh, Anna. Anna, and what's her boyfriend? Anna's boyfriend that drives Kristoff. Yeah, Anna and Kristoff. So they're talking, and we're really derailing here. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but uh, but Olaf says, as this stomach, he's like, sometimes I just like to think about heat and hot and all things warm. And they're like, you don't know much about summer, do you? And he's like, uh, no, and he starts to sing this song called In Summer. And here are some of the lyrics. I'll try to be judicious in what I do here. But he says, bees will buzz, kids will blow dandelion fuzz, and I'll be doing whatever snow does in summer. (laughs) A drink in my hand, my snow up against the burning sand, probably getting gorgeously tanned in summer. I finally see a summer breeze blow away a winter storm and find out what happens to solid water when it gets warm. And I can't wait to see what my buddies all think of me. Just imagine how much cooler I'd be in summer. And then he says, uh, the hot and the cold are both so intense. Put them together, it just makes sense. Winter's a great time to stay in and cuddle, but put me in summer and I'll be a happy snowman. You thought it was puddle. And then here's the end. When life gets rough, I like to hold on to my dreams, relaxing in the summer sun, just letting off steam. Oh, the sky will be blue, and you guys will be there too when I finally do what frozen things do in summer. So uh, poor Olaf doesn't have a clue that what he wants will kill him. Right? So this is, I think of Second Corinthians 7 when I hear that song. Mm-hmm. Olaf has this wonderful idea of summer, and the thing he wants and the thing he's prizing is the thing that will kill him. He's talking about a drink in his hand. He'd be the drink in somebody's hand, okay? And he doesn't get it. And this is the fear of godly sorrow. It's fear mingled with mercy. It's fear that looks back... Look, I've seen pornography. I've looked at it. I had a creepy uncle that gave me a video cassette. If you remember what a video cassette is, I had a creepy uncle that gave me a video cassette when I was eight because he thought it'd be a real kick in the pants to give his uh, twin nephews a pornographic video. And eight, I saw this. And uh, I'm so thankful to the Lord there was no internet. I didn't have the internet until I got to college. Uh, and I'm talking to guys now who are 20, and they don't remember not having access to Internet pornography. So I just had very limited access, or I'd be in a completely different situation, I feel certain. But um, but I look back, even as an 8-year-old boy, at the longing I felt for that. And I tremble. I'm telling you, I tremble at it. 
And I tremble at the Lord's mercy that he would spare me from that. It's, it's a fear mingled with mercy that the Lord could have snuffed you out like that. But he was gracious to you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear. Longing and zeal. I'm going to put those together because I think Paul does. In verse 7 he says, Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. So in this context, Paul is using the language of longing and zeal in the category of relationship. Uh, in the category of wanting to be restored. The longing and the zeal here in the context of 2 Corinthians 7 is, I want to do whatever I've got to do to be restored in the relationships that I've broken. When you or the people you're helping look at pornography, it hurts people. Um, it, uh, people don't think about this. It hurts the people that are on the screen that they're looking at. You're not supposed to treat people that way. You're not supposed to delight in their acts of fornication. Um, do you know that uh, this is just in the category of the horrible cultural fallout of pornography? The, these people in the pornographic industry, I mean, I hate porn. To be honest with you, I don't hate them. My heart breaks for these people. You have no idea how messed they up. The murder rate in the uh, porn industry is the highest of almost any other industry. The suicide rate is higher than almost any other industry. Um, there's all sorts. I mean, I've done a lot of research on this. Uh, 100% of performers in the pornographic industry have or have had an STD. 100%. Um, 90% of women in the porn industry are addicted to illegal drugs. In fact, there's some sociologists that have looked into this. Why in the world um, are so many women drug addicted in the porn industry? And uh, one of those guys did an interview with one uh, lady who, uh, when she did the interview, I don't know what she's up to now, but when she did the interview a couple years ago, she was an active actress in the, in the porn industry. Now, I don't have the heart to give you an unedited rendition of what she said, but here's the general gist. Uh, she said, the reason we do drugs is because we can't stand what's happening to us. Um, she said, your body gets torn to shreds. These guys are punching you in the face. Uh, you're throwing up between takes. Because what they're asking you to do is so revolting. And she said, you get high because there's no other way to deal with it. Um, and I'm going, you know what? She's a sinful woman and she needs Jesus. But do you know who I'm more upset with? I'm more upset with a Christian teenager who feels no responsibility to share the gospel with that woman but thinks that she is there for his sexual consumption. God help us. So the the longing and the zeal here is I want to be restored in the relationships that have that have been broken. Which means uh, when you're counseling somebody 
who's annoyed when their wife has questions or when their parents have questions, they're not demonstrating longing and zeal for restored relationship. What would demonstrate longing and zeal is my life's an open book. In fact, I tell guys who have been found, just because I don't counsel women in an ongoing way who struggle with pornography, uh, so I'm, I'm counseling men, that's my experience. Uh, I'm saying, if you've been found looking at pornography, if you have been unfaithful with another person, uh, you, trust is possible to be restored, but you need to look at this season as a time of rebuilding trust. And that means your life is an open book. And if your wife has questions about why you were late, you are happy to answer them. If your wife wants to look at your cell phone records, you are happy to show it to her. If your parents want to see your Internet history, you are thrilled to show it to them. Because anything less is worldly sorrow, and you'll die. And I don't want you to die. So you are an open book, and you're an open book until further notice. Um, The person who's got a chip on their shoulder that somebody's asking them questions... It's big trouble. It's big trouble. Final manifestation. What punishment? This sounds kind of weird sometimes. What punishment? I was doing uh, counseling with a guy. He uh, came to me after he got arrested. He'd been looking at child pornography and he was part of a sting that had been put together. Um, And I knew him from another ministry setting, and that's how we got connected. Um, And he began to attend our church to get counseling for this problem while the court proceedings were happening. And um, the problem with this fella is that the arresting officers had made mistakes. They had uh, violated some procedural issues, and his attorney was telling him, um, if you plead not guilty, you are going to walk. And um, so he came, it was, it was me and another pastor at our church, he came and was meet with me and he's like, I've got good news, I'm going to get off, all I have to do is plead not guilty. And uh, I asked him, we'll call him Phil, I said, Phil, do you want to die? Uh, and he looked at me like I was getting ready to like, pull out a gun or something, you know, Uh and he said, uh, no, I don't want to die. And I read Second Corinthians 7 to him. Um, and I said, godly sorrow embraces the punishment. That's what godly sorrow does. Um, it's worldly sorrow that wiggles and squirms away from the consequences of sin. We, we don't have to be masochists here. We don't have to love pain. We don't have to go looking for trouble. But we're not going to be dishonest to get out of a punishment. And so the only question is, did you look at the child pornography and was it in your possession? And the answer to that question is yes. And so you embrace the punishment and you plead guilty. And by God's grace, he did. The case still fell through. And that was the Lord's kindness to him at that point. That was, but he was having godly sorrow. Um, so you show me somebody who is doing everything they can to wiggle out from underneath the natural consequences of their sin, and I'll show you somebody who's got worldly sorrow. This is hard, because all of us get into self-preservation mode, um, and this is where God is going to use us as counselors to help people experience life. 
the life of godly sorrow. Don't, don't wiggle and fight away from this. Embrace the consequences and entrust yourself to the Lord and He will take care of you. It goes on to say, at every point you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Now this sounds a little bit like the clear yourself thing. Well, I thought, I thought they were guilty of sin. So how did they prove themselves innocent in the matter? Well, they proved, proved themselves innocent of worldly sorrow. They were guilty of the sin, but when they manifested earnestness, eagerness to clear yourselves, indignation, fear, longing, and zeal and punishment, at every one of those points they showed, this is not worldly sorrow. This is godly sorrow. And so what that means is these are all of a piece at every point. You don't get to pick two and throw off the others. These are all of a piece. And we're looking, we're evaluating all people that we're counseling in their repentance based on these categories. We've got to have Jesus to do this. We're not, biblical counselors are not the people who are who have some abstract ethical norm and we're trying to get to it on our own steam. I loved what Tim just said over there. If Jesus doesn't show up in your counseling, you're not a biblical counselor. And so, uh, the way we need to fold Jesus into this understanding is you're going to have, with regard to this text and with regard to have pornography, uh, with the problem of pornography, you're going to have two problems. One problem is people aren't sad at all. Or the other problem is people are sad in the wrong way. Namely, they've got worldly sorrow. And what we want is people to be sad and to be sad in the right way, possessing godly sorrow. And how do you get that? Well, the only way to get that is Jesus Christ and His grace. It is, if this is a good thing, then we need Jesus to give it. And so we are praying to Jesus for our own hearts. God, help us in our own hearts to possess godly sorrow when we sin. And we are praying for those that we counsel uh, that God would give them godly sorrow by the grace of His Son, Jesus. And we are appealing to our counselees to have these things not based on their own moral effort. We're not trying to get them to screw up the ability to have godly sorrow. We're saying, you know what you need to do? Is you need to pray with me and ask the Lord that He would forgive you of your heart and impenitent heart and you need to ask for grace to have sorrow that is characterized by these seven manifestations. And if you pray that prayer in faith, Jesus will give it to you. You know that? That's not pie in the sky. Jesus will give it to you. If you draw near to Jesus in faith, he would never, ever, ever not give you a biblical request. And so Jesus would love to draw near to those we counsel and give him this when, we, when they pray to him in faith. Let me pray and we'll be done. Father in heaven, I want to ask that you would... Make us to be a people that are characterized by godly sorrow in every area of our life. But, Father, particularly as we think about this issue of godly sorrow and pornography, first of all, Father, I pray, as I prayed before, that you protect our culture, that you protect our families. I think of Carson and Chloe and Connor, and I know they've got bullseyes on their forehead. And I pray that you protect them, and I know they represent the many other kids that are... um, Uh, that are in families of people in this room. And so, Father, would you watch over us and would you watch over your church? Father, would you do it by causing us to be people who are broken over sin? And, Father, would you do it for the sake of our Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.
how much uh, how much failure do you tolerate? Well, yeah, that depends. You know, I mean, if uh, if I sense that people are being honest and working. I'm in for the long haul. You know, I don't expect people to get it right straight away. But once I start having to chase people, I'm starting to get real concerned, you know. And so, and that's, honestly, we, we say at our church, and we've disciplined people for this. Um, but we, 